Hey, this is Vanessa, and I'm the Prevention Services Coordinator at King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, or KSARC. This is Building Resilience, a project with the purpose of equipping people with what they need to end sexual violence. In my time working in the field of sexual assault advocacy and prevention, I've come to learn that a good amount of my work is spent dispelling commonly held myths about sexual assault. Unfortunately, these myths do a lot of harm because they can get in the way of us enacting change and preventing further assaults, and can make it a lot harder for survivors to come forward and seek support. For example, in our previous series, we discussed the myth of stranger danger. That's the assumption that most sexual assaults happen when a really scary stranger jumps out of the bushes wearing a trench coat or something. While stranger assaults absolutely do happen, it's far more likely that it will be someone who knows the victim or survivor, about 8 out of 10 times. Knowing this really shifts the way that people understand the dynamics of sexual assault. In many instances, when I tell people that I'm a violence preventionist, they assume that I teach self-defense classes and arm people with pepper spray. And sure, people can absolutely do these things if it helps them feel empowered and safe navigating the world. But how likely are you going to be to bust these out when you're just hanging out with a friend? And why is it just the responsibility of the potential victim or survivor to defend themselves? In this episode, I chat with Kat Moneski of the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs, who shares some of what we know about best practices when talking about sexual assault. While some of us are so passionate about this topic, there are tips and tactics that we can intentionally employ to make it so that we best reach other people. As a heads up, there's general mention of sexual assault and abuse in this episode. Hi, I am Kat Moneski. I use she and her and hers pronouns. Uh, Right now, I'm living in Richmond, Virginia, although I'll be returning to the lovely Pacific Northwest soon. Um, So I want to recognize and honor that I'm living on the stolen lands of the Powhatan tribes here in Virginia. Uh, In my professional role, I work at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs. I'm the Prevention and Social Change Manager. So in this role, I provide training, consultation, and support, and design resources for sexual assault programs and allied partners across the state. I really love coalition work because of getting to work with the preventionists who are doing really cool and innovative work with and for their communities. And we get to talk about primary prevention and health promotion, look at exploring anti-oppression, root causes of violence, um, engaging young people, supporting their development, and designing campaigns that can really reach a wide group of people. So when I'm not doing that stuff, (laughs) you'll find me maybe doing some other nerdy things in my life, like working on puzzles, um, color coding spreadsheets because I'm a Virgo, (laughs) you know, but also doing some lighthearted things like cooking or taking a little nap or a walk with my two chihuahuas. Nice. Thank you, Kat. I know you from, you know, your previous time, your previous stint at Wixap. So you've been working in this field um, for a bit. Can you tell us about your experience working in the field of gender-based violence? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I was doing the math thinking about this and I'm always a little startled when I'm like, wow, it's been over 15 years now. How did that happen? Where did the time (laughs) go? You know, I think like a lot of people, I mean, definitely not everybody, but for a lot of people, you know, I think I came into this work in a similar way. I wanted to get more connected to my community and do some volunteer work. And so I started doing these evening shifts at a domestic violence shelter. 
I had this awesome mentor in college who um, has been doing that work for a long time. And so she connected me with them. And I just felt so passionate about getting to work with folks in the shelter. And then, so I started finding other part-time jobs I could take on doing that 24 seven response in hospitals for folks who need forensic exams after a sexual assault, um, helping folks go get protective orders. Um, and then for a couple of years, I worked on a pretty large college campus providing both that kind of advocacy support and doing community education on the college campus. And so really had a lot of love and excitement for working directly with people, um, but then found um, that for me, I think I had a little bit more comfort and it kind of transitioned well for me to start working at coalitions Mm -hmm. and working with the people who are working with survivors Mm -hmm. and doing that prevention work. And so, you know, like you had mentioned, I worked at the Washington Sexual Assault Coalition for about eight years. And then I left and returned to my home state of Virginia and worked for their coalition for a couple of years. And now I'm just freshly back at WICSAP. So I keep going coast to coast, but (laughs) really feeling like um, working in this field is something that is so important to me. Awesome. And we're really happy to have you back in Washington State. Um, Yeah. What keeps you doing this work? Yeah. You know, when I was in college, I studied sociology and I really fell in love with that approach of thinking about the world, seeing that big picture, how society, communities, families and networks are also woven together and that there are these really interesting patterns and strategies and tools you can use in social movements to create social change. And so kind of taking that interest and pairing that with my experiences working more directly in sexual and domestic violence advocacy, I really found that prevention was the place that lived at the intersection of those two things and really helped see how we can create change. You know, sometimes I think it feels really, really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing that keeps me in this movement and keeps me feeling like prevention is really possible are those moments where you see a light bulb for someone happen in a conversation or in a training space, when you see people and communities changing and thriving. You know, I think in my role now, I don't get to necessarily do as much of that or see as much of that firsthand. I'm getting that sometimes more from the stories I'm hearing from you all in community-based programs, but hearing you talk about working with a group of young people and seeing the way that they are inspired and energized and they're becoming activists and talking to some of them too and just hearing the language that they use and I'm like wow you're so much smarter than I was at 15 (laughs) right and I'm like wow a lot has changed in the last 30 years Mm -hmm. like it really it, it is a long game but I really do see those moments where I'm like wow it really is happening people are really pivoting they are finding support in each other and they're creating this exciting and large change yes absolutely i i would agree that the the helpful kind of um you know perspective that prevention takes is definitely what keeps me going too um and that being said like you know 
We um, have this series of podcast episodes just to help folks understand what prevention looks like on just like, you know, on the ground, day to day, um, what things that we can help folks understand contribute to preventing violence. So, um, you know, before this call, you and I chatted a bit about the words that we use to discuss um, sexual violence and why that matters. So, um, yeah, I'd really love for us to be able to share with all listeners, um, both those that are in the field professionally and those that are not, but are still super passionate about enacting change, to get some pointers on how we can more effectively communicate about sexual violence. So what have you found helpful when talking about preventing sexual assault with those who may not be convinced that prevention is possible? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I think that For those of us who identify as survivors and those of us who do this work, it becomes such a big focus of our lives that I think we can sometimes forget that sexual violence is so complicated and it's so nuanced and it Mm -hmm. is hard for folks to really get a good understanding um, about what it truly looks like. You know, there are some really huge and deeply embedded myths in our society Mm -hmm. about who experiences sexual violence and who commits sexual violence. And so it can be really, I think, easy to get frustrated that we just want more people to have an understanding with us. Um, And, you know, I think that we have to sometimes take a step back and think about those nuances. Uh, And there's a lot of science out there about how people hear and interpret social issues. It's really fascinating. And just that realization that the way we're talking about something may not be the best way for someone to hear it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a real bummer yeah. <laughs> you know, to have that realization. Um, I wish it was enough also to just say like, don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if that's all it took, then you know we could scrap my job and I could just go door to door and I could knock and I could be like, did you know that sexual violence is really harmful? Like, just don't ever do it. And then people would be like, I'm so glad you told me. Um, okay, deal, mm-hmm. you know, right? But that it's really, really, it is, it takes a lot deeper work to make mm-hmm. those kind of pivots. And so I do think when you put all of that together and you factor all of that in, you can see how much language really, really matters. So I have found it very helpful to utilize some resources that were made in partnership between people from the sexual violence field and from like the communications field. Mm -hmm. And so I know I had shared with you, and I think you'll be linking um, with the podcast two toolkits that were co-authored by the Berkeley Media Studies Group. And Mm -hmm. I found them to be so helpful and all, you know, the warning out there they're really long (laughs) you know so maybe some of what we talk about in the podcast can be your clips notes version if you don't want to read an 80 plus page document that's really fair (laughs) um so a couple of the rules of the road i feel like i've learned from them that i think are helpful is that plain language really is helpful when we're talking about both the experiences of sexual assault by survivors and when we're trying to talk about this complex idea of what it means to prevent it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's a tip that matters a lot for those of us doing this work professionally because we're inundated mm-hmm. with jargon. But right. I think that really does apply to everybody. Um, I think that it can be so helpful for us to think about 
using more common words and avoiding some of the jargon that comes up in social change world Mm -hmm. and you know really like name and explain concepts instead of using some of those jargon words they call them insider language Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the berkeley media studies guide and we they really kind of encourage and give some helpful examples about how you can change some of that insider language and use ways of talking about um, experiences of violence and pathways to prevention that can be a little bit easier to understand and feel um, like clearer. So I think that can be something that's really helpful for all of us um, to think about that instead of trying to explain things in the most academic way possible, Mm -hmm. to really explain them based on the ways that we feel about those things and the ways that other people feel about them. which is then I think really deeply connected to the second kind of rule of the road that is to create connection. So not only do we want prevention to be easy enough to understand, but I think that message has to be something that is, you know, persuasive to the audience that you're talking to, which means every mm-hmm. time you're talking about it, it's going to be a little bit different if you're talking mm-hmm. about it to your kids or your family members, or your coworkers, um, or like a big group of people in your community, that the more comfortable you can get with talking about prevention, the more you'll be able to pivot and be able to, you know, create more specific connection. Like tell stories that elicit the feeling of prevention and the possibility of it. Mm-hmm. You know, share examples from your own community. Um, and sometimes I think it can be helpful to draw comparisons to something else that like the person you're talking to already has a deeper understanding of, Mm -hmm. you know, that is a, I think a common messaging technique of evoking a shared value as someone, you know, if you want the person you're talking to, to understand how important prevention is, you want to evoke senses of caring and empathy, respect accountability, you know, so you could say something like, you know, we are responsible for ourselves and for one another. And that's why I think we have to work on this prevention plan or whatever it is that you're hoping to maybe get someone to get a deeper investment in. I think that that is a way to create a common path forward with other Mm -hmm. people because prevention takes each and every one of us. Mm -hmm. And so as you get more passionate about creating safer futures for our kids and for our communities, you're going to need all your neighbors, everyone in your network to really want to get on that road with you and for you all to be able to do something together that feels like it will really work like right there in that community. Yeah. I think the other thing, the third, like kind of roll the road that that makes me think about in that sense of those deep feelings and values is that we have to talk about the people who cause harm Mm -hmm. and that's really, really hard. So I think something helpful to think about is to focus on the conduct and Mm. not the character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like that point. And it reminds me of, you know, that Jay Smooth video, um, where he talks about, you know, how much you 
further you can go with the conversation by calling out someone's action as racist rather than just labeling them as a racist, which they can just Im- immediately deny being, right? Um, so yeah, let's talk more about that. How do you think this practice helps with preventing harm and sexual assault? Oh yeah, absolutely. I love that video. I think it's so helpful. And I think it's a really good parallel for this conversation because you know I think that something feels so critical when we wanna think about preventing harm and sexual assault is investing in the humanity of everyone mm-hmm. and the ability of people to change their behaviors. Right. You know, I think it's so important we hold people accountable when they cause harm, but we also don't want to be part of a community that throws people away and doesn't believe in the human ability for change. Mm-hmm. I think to me, having an investment in that belief feels so deeply tied to your belief in prevention too. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of really deep misconceptions about who it is who's committing sexual violence. We've seen um, through lots of media depictions, too, that, you know, we want to think that those people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they are somehow other, they're Mm -hmm. someone other than us. They must be depraved. They must be bad people um, because that also creates a sense of safety for Mm -hmm. us, I think. So I understand that desire that um, it you know does feel helpful to create distance and think that you're safer because you're not associating with those types of people. And it's kind of a terrible realization when you understand that most violence is perpetrated by people who have a relationship of some sort with the people mm-hmm. that they harm. And that mm-hmm. really is a tough moment, I think, to sit with. And it's important to acknowledge how hard that is for us, but not let it impede our ability to believe in prevention and to believe in the way that change can happen. Um, You know, we do have to accept that harm is going to be some form of harm, whether it is sexual harm or whether it is something else will be, you know, committed by our family members and our friends Mm -hmm. and our coworkers and our classmates. Um, and we have to, you know, believe in that ability to connect to both accountability and healing. And so mm-hmm. I really do think that, like you were saying, when we take away that habit of really focusing on the label of like that person, their identity mm-hmm. is now that they are an abuser, they're a rapist, they're an offender. Um, it's really easy to come up against a lot of defensiveness Mm -hmm. and distractions and Mm -hmm. diversions from the, you know, the intent, which is to really talk about the conduct or the action, you know? And so I think we can shift our language and avoid some of those barriers so that you're not having someone say, well, that's not who I am. It's not who they are, but they're a good person. Mm-hmm. But if we can really focus on the actions, then we're already on this clear pathway to working out a plan on like what changes need to happen in behavior or language, because we've already set our focus on those things. Um, so I think it kind of helps us to separate out someone's whole sense of being from their actions. Mm-hmm. And it is hard, it feels hard to change a person. It feels less hard to change an action or a behavior or a language pattern. Those are 
a little more tangible. I think we can all like think about that that feels like something we can change. I think it's a small shift in um, thinking and in language, but I think it does have a big ripple impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that absolutely goes hand in hand with violence prevention, right? That like hopefulness that like this is like behavioral change, not, you know, just like throwing the bad folks, the bad guys, you know, into yeah. prison and then just, you know, calling it a day because that's not at all how it works. And yeah, it does help folks deny like I could never do that. I'm such a nice person. Like I have a exactly. mom. I have sisters. I would never harm, you know, a woman, but really focusing on the behavior. Um yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so let's talk more about how this shows up in the way that you talk, um, right? Um, another thing that I think a lot of people encounter is, you know, whether or not someone else might intend to put the blame or the focus back on the victim or survivor. Um, do you have any tips on how to kind of confront that? Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that's another thing from these Berkeley, Berkeley Media Studies guys that's helpful is that they also spend a lot of time talking about how we can shift our focus to accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, um, whether it's intentional or not, um, questions that really center on what a victim did, who they are, how, it, how they could have been different in a situation, mm-hmm. it diverts the attention of the conversation all onto them. And one of the principles that really guides prevention work is that we have to sh- center our energy on changing the actions of perpetrators because mm-hmm. truly they're the only ones who can create that difference, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're the only ones responsible for whether or not they cause harm, but it really can't be about what a victim did or who they are. But it's so easy for our language to accidentally slip back there. So, you know, for example, if someone, you're talking to someone about something maybe you heard in the news or something that happened in the community, it just, you know, it can be like, oh, it's terrible that that thing happened. You know, and we all agree it's terrible. But just, I feel like you'll encounter so often that uh, the conversation shifts to, well, why were they there or what were they wearing? Um, you know, they shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or even why didn't they tell someone? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and those are questions that people are going to ask because of the way that we hear and think and view sexual violence, I think, in our society and in the media, um, that that's going to happen all the time. And I think if you're someone who's trying to engage in prevention, frameworks. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to see that as a moment to shift the focus of the conversation. I think a lot of us, we get um, we get defensive ourselves on the behalf of survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, so if someone says, well, they should have come, that survivor should have come forward. You know, mm-hmm. if this was really true, they would have told someone. Mm-hmm. And I think it could be really easy to be like, you don't understand. There are so many reasons victims don't come forward. There are even more reasons why like children or teenagers don't because 
young people don't aren't believed by adults. So of course, like this experience of sexual assault was confusing and isolating, you mm-hmm. know, and um, those are all true. They're all mm-hmm. true facts. But I've just made the conversation all about the victim. I'm so um, passionate to defend them and defend why it's not their fault that I've made the entire conversation about their actions still. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we aren't ever meaning to do harm to the way that sexual violence is viewed, but I think we can have a little bit of prevention benefit by not falling into that and instead responding with language that is focused purely on accountability. So in that scenario, when someone says like, well, why didn't they tell someone if it was real? Mm-hmm. You know, I might say, that's a really good question. I understand why you might ask that. You know, I really feel like people who choose to sexually abuse like kids and teens or adults even, they're doing a lot of work in that situation to create that environment where someone wouldn't tell on them. Mm-hmm especially when we are talking about an age difference, uh, you know, adults will take certain actions to make it so that that person really trusts them and that they've kind of created this shield for themselves. You'll sometimes hear that they're, you know, using coercive language to make a person feel like that it's their, that they invited these actions to happen to them. And that if they told someone they'd get in trouble and wouldn't they feel terrible for that? And so, you, you know, you can still, you are still, I think, defending why a young person didn't come forward, but mm-hmm. you're helping the person who's struggling with this myth to think more about, oh, wow, I hadn't, I didn't know anything about what we call grooming. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that people are taking those steps to make someone be more quiet, to, um, plant the seed in that victim's mind that they won't be believed and that it would be their fault. Now, if this person causing harm got in trouble. And so you're getting to the same end message, but you're going about it in this really different way that I think helps people who are sifting through all of those embedded myths. It helps them think on their own instead of just telling them you're wrong and you don't understand. You're helping them think through all of these nuances that are about the accountability of the person who committed the harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That was a really good example of how we can really, you know, change the focus onto like holding, you know, the person that caused the harm accountable for the behaviors that they chose to do. Um, Do you have any other takeaways for listeners and how they can apply this to their day to day? Sure. Well, I'll start out with like one that maybe is like a really big, (laughs) a big item to tackle, Mm -hmm. but also so simple. And is that to really develop a deep belief that prevention is possible. It is harder to do than it sounds, you know, prevention's in my job title. So you think that it's just old news for me. And Mm -hmm. I still can sometimes grapple with, wow, We have this huge hill to climb towards social change. If I think about it in the biggest context, I'm like, yikes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, you have to roll back your thinking a little bit and take stock of 
the impact you have. So something that I think was really helpful for me in the last couple of years, as I've been continuing to try to think about new ways to think about prevention, um, is reading work from Adrienne Marie Brown, especially mm-hmm. one of her books called Emergent Strategy. Mm-hmm. She really explains this connection that she calls fractals. And it's this idea that everything we do on the small scale has a really clear ripple out on the big scale. I think it's a great reminder to know that we do need to make some big institutional changes, absolutely, but also the things we do in our day-to-day lives and in our relationships, Mm -hmm. they are a part of social change. Mm -hmm. You know, it may not be in someone's work plan, (laughs) you know, um, who, you know, has like this big grant focus on doing prevention and the way that they're doing that work is really important part of the puzzle too, but every single person is a part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Um, and that you really do have a role in it. Um, so I think, you know, the other takeaways to, especially for those of us who are not um, doing this work professionally, but I still think it's so important for us too to remember to start small and to really value the way that you're making an investment and in increasing your knowledge. So you're listening to this podcast, right? You don't have to listen to this podcast, but clearly you want to increase your knowledge. You want to increase your skills and that that is a part of this prevention puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, and that if you change the way you have some conversations in your friend group or at work in your social circle, like that, that is also a part of that prevention puzzle. You know, actually one of the really tangible resources I recommend to people constantly is something that you all at KSARC made called the 100 conversations. I think it is so great. I think that, you know, you and I probably have a lot of shared interest in the power of conversation, Mm -hmm. right? As preventionists. And Mm -hmm. also I think whether that, whether or not you're a parent or there's just young people in your lives, maybe you're a teacher, you have nieces and nephews, you have chosen family who have kids that, most of us have at least some kiddo in our lives. And I think that we can forget as adults too, that we have a really big impact on them. Mm-hmm. You don't have to necessarily have your hat on all the time thinking that you are someone's official mentor, right? <laughs> but like you're modeling things constantly yeah. and that young people are absorbing so much of it. So I think even these small things you can start to do Mm-hmm. can really influence the way that other people are having conversations and the behaviors they're choosing to invest in. Um, and then the third thing I would say would be, you know, if you are feeling like, okay, I've got this investment, I've got this lens on where I'm like seeing that prevention is possible, I'm doing these small steps, Um, and you're excited and you want to think more about messaging, (laughs) since that's kind of what we were talking about, Mm -hmm. is that um, to look at those two toolkits from the Berkeley Media Studies group, they are long, but they're really well organized into different sections that you could take as like bite-sized pieces. 
and they give some great tips about message development. It's kind of cool to think about the structure of compelling messages, you know, but if that's like way more than you want to do, I think the simple tips I could leave you with about message development are to have the first is like have a clear and compelling statement of the problem that you want to address with someone or that you want other people to address to say why it matters in a way where you really create connection to values and to hopefulness, I think, you know, and then to emphasize some kind of solution. And I don't think solution has to be like, it is the final answer or it's a major step. I think Mm -hmm. even small pivots are a part of creating a solution for either a moment or a future moment. Um, And so I think, you know, if you think about those three kind of um, parts of an effective message, I think we can, we all have the tools to use that more often in the way we're engaging in conversation. It just sometimes does take a slight moment to pause and think about how you want to respond, what you want to say, or how you want to initiate a conversation. And I think, you know, be gentle and gracious with yourself and like take that pause before you engage in that conversation if you need to so that you can really feel like you were able to collect your thoughts think about the way that you want to center prevention in that conversation and then you can have that you know in a way that is um, maybe more proactive instead of reactive even you know so I think we all have a lot of a lot of things we can do within that world of message development. Yes, absolutely. Anything else you want to share? Um, I think the last thing I would just want to share is that I'm so excited that there are so many of you out there who are listening to this case podcast, who are wanting to make that investment in how we all are a part of creating like a thriving future for us and for our kids and our communities. And I appreciate that you all are showing up. And, you know, if you want more help and you're in King County, then reach out to KSART because they're awesome and they can absolutely support you or any friends or family you have who are experiencing sexual assault or who want to engage more in prevention. There are so many resources out there and Uh, I think it takes a lot of bravery to access them. And so I think we need to normalize asking for that help when we need it. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Kat. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you to Kat Minuski for the content in this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the great resources that she mentioned in this episode. This episode was edited and produced by me, Vanessa Corwin, of King County Sexual Assault Resource Center. Find us online at kcsarc.org, on socials at kcsarc, or email us at education at kcsarc.org. Thanks for listening.